Hi, everyone, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Built in New York series where I'm connecting you to some awesome people just changing the way we do things in the world. Uh, with us on the line uh, from New York is none other than the co-founder and CEO of Data Vault Holdings. Uh, his name is Nathaniel Bradley. Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate uh, you doing this. We finally made it happen, man. Uh, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, thanks for Finally coordinating the schedule. You know, I really appreciate your flexibility. No, man. All good. It's great to have you here. So look, you've, you've, this isn't your first startup. You've actually built and sold and listed a few companies. So I'd love it if you could fill our audience in uh, around the world. Like, Tell us a bit about you. Give us the elevator pitch. Um, and then we can kind of get into the meat and the potatoes of Data Vault. It's great. Uh, my brother, Sean, and I uh, had a company uh, just past the, uh, the audio Y. Uh, it's ticker AEYE, NASDAQ traded. Uh, we spent uh, 15 years advocating uh, for individuals with disabilities and building a platform that helped the blind, deaf, dyslexic, autistic, low in vision, low in hearing, low in learning. And those communities um, underserved, you know, based on their population and the, the focus on them was a utility in the cloud that would enable uh, environments, mobile web environments, uh, everything from payroll systems uh, to general use, daily use systems, such as your school districts and other aspects of life that we wanted to unlock uh, for the, those constituents. And um, we learned a process of uh, really protecting intellectual property uh, through patents and also reducing those patents to practice uh, we built essentially the space, which is now accessibility in the cloud. And um, having that experience, uh, I wanted to do something with social impact and something big. And um, leaving that success, uh, it was hard fought to find something that would engage uh, the capability that we created uh, there at AudioWide to do something even greater. And so Data Vault's focus is around data monetization, uh, turning data to dollar. And uh, no different than Bloomberg's done for 45 years in, in an extremely successful modality with this Bloomberg terminal. Uh, we felt it was time that there was a uh, democratization of that or an ability for individuals uh, to start to feast on the value of the data that they create uh, for businesses to look backwards and look at historical data and literally IPO it onto their balance sheet. And so that became a system where we saw we could solve for poverty, the national debt, uh, big, big vision uh, technology. And that's where I found I like to start. So that's a little bit about me. I, I, I like to make social impact uh, with technologies and skill set that I've, I've developed over my career. And I have a team uh, that's really second to none that helps me execute that. So it's an exciting time in life. Yeah, well, congratulations, man. It's nice to be doing something that, you know, um, makes money, but also makes a difference at the same time. And I think <clears throat> that's actually something rare. You know, I, I think a lot of founders, we have this intention, this motivation to want to contribute and make a difference. Um, but to get the passion and the business and the contribution and the sense of meaning and purpose all baked into one thing, uh, that's a rare thing to achieve. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, that that is... Uh... 
a special uh, thing in life to, to be able to realize what you want to do in life. And and so uh, I'm, I'm really blessed to have that um, kind of focus right now and a, a team again, that helps me execute that. So, uh, you know, thanks again for having me on the show. Anytime. Dude. So what is the problem from your perspective that uh, data vault solves? Is it a data equity problem? Is it a data transparency problem? Walk us through in your own words, what's the problem? It's valuation. Uh, price discovery. Uh, if you can make a copy of something, how could it be valuable? And the idea that copies and the control of copies, and if you look at the NFT phenomenon, you know, we, we rushed out, you know, the gates with that technology, I would say analogous to what Napster did in, in audio files. Uh, you know, uh, this technology's breakthrough. It ultimately is like the iTunes, Okay. But uh, what happened was uh, a breakthrough occurred, a lot of running to market to use a use case in art or other areas. But the NFT unlocked the ability to use crypto to transact data and to control that copy scenario. And when you have supply and demand under control, you can create value. And when you have a sense of value, you tend to protect it. And so cybersecurity is the second problem. Valuation, cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is something that uh, executives are uncomfortable with. Uh, I've been privy to conversations where executives are unsure where their servers are, uh, what state, what county, what what the data center, what backup. Um, But those things exist and they're hardware elements in a data architecture that's gotten more and more complex when you look at cloud and on-prem, off-prem, cyber-secure, non-cyber-secure, and all these rule sets like HIPAA compliance in healthcare or in, in, in the banking level of security around data. So valuation and cybersecurity are the nest of data valuation and data monetization. And so you can't value anything if you got leaky supply. If it's going out your back door, I can't value it. I can't freeze frame on the value because there's that leaky nature. No different than counterfeit is in, in, in general business or, or fraud is in general business. Uh, so too does data have a lot of uh, issues to solve before you can normalize it. And mm. that, so that, that, in, that in is the conundrum. Um, and then also, um, if I were to trade you data today, would I send you the data first or would you send me the cash? Mm. And it, 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 it's the exchange, too, that's a problem. And so we solve for both things, all three things, the valuation, the cybersecurity, and the monetization with Data Vault. And that's the breakthrough. And we use Web 3.0, the metaverse, to do it. And that's, that's what's never been here before that opened the door for this to happen. So Nathaniel, is it fair to say that your you guys are essentially helping uh, customers or businesses to monetize data estates and data to create what is essentially a new asset class around data? Exactly. So we think that it's a class of classes. There is a uh, a market within uh, a company around its data assets that potentially is non-controversial, non-competitive. It is a it's something that does not harm the business, but it's truly adjunctive. Take a drive through restaurant selling automotive data from a customer who opts in and says, please give me every discount advantage I have in life. 
And if you can give them discount advantage and you can, you can give value to everyone, you get a standing ovation. Customers happy. The, 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 the drive-through restaurants making a buck 50 extra. And, and the, and the buyer of the data is getting finite data that exactly a pinpoint what they wanted. And that, so that, that, that concept of data objectification to say, Hey, I do have a lot of traffic going through my drive-through. And to say that that could be monetized instantly by the know-how that that happens all over America every single day, millions and millions of times per city. And so that, that concept, and that's a very rudimentary, simple one, but in biotech, fintech, in all these areas where we've gone deep into analytics. And if you read about our company, um, there's a dearth of writing um, and white paper and patent that we put out um, about these objects and how they are an asset class. In many cases, in many places, they can transcend assets such as commodities and simplify the very complex, take a carbon credit. How do you calculate a ton? How much do you burn? How much do you need? there's a simple token that solves all of it. And it's a price point based on ton. And we can calculate your your burn using data. Um, so there's so many things that we can do in data today that we couldn't do even a year ago that have opened doors to these new objects and these new asset classes of data. So you make a great point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathaniel, how big is this problem? Like if you were to put a dollar value on the either the problem or the opportunity because it seems to me like most businesses have a dearth of data. They're just creating more and more data. It's a deluge. Um, And so if they're not able to unlock value from that data or a new asset class from that value, what would you say is the opportunity that you guys are going after in terms of value? So the data lakes have been created. Uh, There's data lakes, data moats, data data all around us. And you're right. You know, there's been since, uh, call it uh, 2008, there's been a focus on big data. Uh, we call it a cloud. We've called it, we've named it several times. But the, the idea that that software as a service, cloud-based systems, and on-prem security, Oracle, Azure, others, have all created uh, this data lake. And the idea is, is that along comes the fisherman. And when you fish the lake, when you look at the lake and it's fish with, within it, how much data is there? How much do you collect? What's its cadence? How does it grow? Where's it coming in from? And you look at all those aspects. Hi, everyone. You can see that data lake in a new context. And you may say, our data lake's not secure enough because it's worth a lot of money. And the idea that, that, Value denotes action, that, that, that money motivates companies and people, and that you can, in, in terms of creating value from the lake, simply identify the fish and the value, and then see those values in a context of, what if I needed to make payroll with that? What if I needed to extend my company's revenues or growth pattern or, or in, in the richness of things have more? In the in the in the in the uh, capacity where you have less, or you're you're trying to come out of poverty or come out of strife, that you could look at the data in your wake and realize that you become a rare human being in your suffering, and that your suffering wants to be studied, 
and that there's areas where even the most impoverished people are creating data of value. And we simply need a system to monetize and deliver that value downstream. So no matter how big the lake, it could be a puddle. But the idea that that you would extract from that value and that data is created in our wake, that you could touch the water and create data. And that that so that that idea um, that the data lakes are rotund uh, to the point where it's a ticking time bomb in terms of its expiration of value. And the idea that if we start to fish the lake, perhaps we solve more than we realize. Perhaps the lakes around us of data have solved all the problems that we have now and into the future. We're simply not sharing our marvels. We're not thinking in synapse connections. And so that's what data vaults about is erecting vaults inside lakes and fishing the fish right out of the lake, getting the value, showing executives what they have and letting them trade in a, in a platform, in a marketplace that makes sense and is controlled and has all the protections that you'd have in a stock or a bond. Mm-hmm. So that's the key. <clears throat> so Nathaniel, it's it's uh, just on this data thing. Like I get what you guys are doing. You're basically erecting data vaults within these lakes um, and kind of giving uh, the decision makers within the business insights into you know how this data can be connected, labeled, and ultimately commercialized through a sort of like a Web three enabled platform, which is what you guys are providing. And I'd love to talk to you about use cases. But before we do, very curious to get your view on how does a business decide like on what's valuable and what's not. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's so much data. What's valuable? What's not data? How does one approach uh, solving that kind of uh, problem for uh, a business? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Uh, so when you look at that, it's really it's really uh, important to realize that there's only three types of data in any organization. It is historic, current, and future. And when you look through that lens, it helps you say, well, what in the past have I encountered? And we all have, you know, in enterprise businesses today, you have a stack of bills from cloud services companies, Amazon, uh, whoever's storing your data, doing your compute, is having a billing relationship with you that you may view as deleterious or or enabling, depending on your view set and what how it serves your company. And so compliance and other things tailor onto that. So the absolute key is to look at each business and all of the data that it's touched in the past 
all of the data that it paid for, all the systems it put in place. So as you stand up a company, you'll realize, oh, we did install a video camera. We changed all our lights to LED so our employees could see better and that we'd have better environment. So the investments you made along the way, you may have done that innocently or right in the in the in the direct line of your daily action that you made a choice to go to LED, but you didn't realize that you created a carbon credit. You didn't realize that in your wake that you hired and fired 17 people that were in the wheelhouse of what of who is looking for those people now. And and the idea that that even the most hardship that you go, the hardest hardships that you would go through in a, in a business, in starting up, in, in making mistakes, that your mistakes may be the most valuable data that you make. And so it's, it's, so one, it's perception, historic, current, future. And then secondly, looking at the data types that I encounter and what are the known values? What's the low hanging fruit? You know, Indeed has a very systematic way of, of, of monetizing resumes and monetizing uh, content. So can we take a comp from that? Can we say that on that server, I have a thousand resumes and that, that although my rights are limited to use that, if I de-identify these people and I use it as a stat, could I, could I distill some value from my HR department? from my PR department, from any department that I run on control, that anything in my wake, historic, present, or future is potential data object. And so, and then not reinventing the wheel, we created templates. So if you're a bowling alley, I know you have shoe size. I know you have light beer preference. I know you have pizza toppings. I know you have, you know, so, so the idea that templating per vertical is already done for you. So, um, where does the aspect of Web three come into this? So, if we're moving, and one of the key things on your website is like there's going to be 34 billion smart devices online by 2025. It's like this Internet of Things, this Internet of Connectivity, this in this in this web of the spaghetti da- of data lakes, as an example. So, where does Web three as a concept start to become relevant in this discussion? Because it would seem to me that um, with the current narrative around NFTs largely seen as digital junk, for instance, Bitcoin trading, loss of value, decentralized currencies. There's a lot of like, let's just say, um, less than desirable narrative around Web3. And if you're a Web2 business with all these data lakes with, you know, infrastructure that's Web2, and I'm thinking Web2, how does one then translate, you know what I'm saying, like the Web3 opportunity into a Web2 mindset? Where does yes. that Where does that story begin that story begins uh for me with data of our holdings where we punched a hole in the website so we took a normal website web 2.0 website and we punched a hole in it we don't think you're going to put the glasses on right now if you're if you're ford ceo i don't think i could get you to put your body in there and do things okay i think you would pull up ford's website in a portal for the ceo and you'd punch a hole in the website and you'd let him see the metaverse of his data estate. 
all the spinning core, you know, in his case, Mustangs and other other aspects that he touched in the past. Shelby, all the things in the past. OK, all the things in the present, the Bronco and everything else. And then the things of the future, all the design work in the five years ahead that they work. But the, to see that in a data state in the metaverse where he could flip his fingers and see that in 3D. And drill into that and get Shelby's, you know, personal bio and look at him as a human being. Look, look at what he did for Ford. But have that in an exquisite record in a data object that's priced, that's understood of value. Think of his estate is very valued. The Ford estate has been valued by every practitioner out there, every auctioneer. And so the idea that every trade, every auction, the Ford value changes, and that if you could punch a hole in the metaverse and show a CEO the power of it, he might encode his body and get in there. And so, so I would say that that the idea of the metaverse is profound. NFTs are a breakthrough. It's a miracle. It is the ability to trade something and never have to go back and retread, recollect, get a get a lawyer. All the all the things that the NFT solves for in an instant, in a simple little coin. People call it digital junk because they don't understand it. If you, it, it's more valuable than a junk that it that it tracks in a lot of cases. But tracking it, having a contract around it. If I sold you a nut or a bolt, but I had the ability to split the commission and do it do it automatically, and, and, and so that I could trade that nut or a bolt a million times and walk away richer than cleaning rooms in a hotel. Okay, so the idea that there are sophisticated jobs, cerebral, data-driven jobs that that the NFT creates, and it's it's fished out of the lake, it's valued, and you're able to exchange it with no lawyers, and you can pay the people that deserve to be paid that are behind the asset and a standing ovation from everyone, not this chasing people around, suing everyone, trying to claw back the money that's owed to you. It's old. It's mm. antiquated. So that's so, that's what it is. So maybe I think uh, I think I'm, I'm getting it, and, and I hope a lot of our audience is as well. It's pretty. It's a pretty technical thing that we're discussing here. Um, I'd love for us to maybe dumb this down and, and say, cool, here's a practical way that Data Vault establishes um, value through de or data valuation um, within, let's just say, a QSR restaurant, for instance. So, sure. um, so let's and let's just take our time with this because I think this is a really important piece to this story, where it's about how you take um, technology such as the platform that you built and solve this data valuation problem for a uh, a Web two company, a simple QSR restaurant as an example, but then through all that be able to extend value across multiple uh, partners. So, um, so let's do that. Walk us through yeah. a simple use case for this whole thing okay. that, so, that makes this all tangible. Okay. So if um, you saw the movie Coming to America, it was McDowell's. So we'll talk about McDowell's, okay, restaurant. And McDowell's is a drive through restaurant. They do hamburgers. They have a, you know, a fun meal, okay? Every fun meal that goes out the window is going to a family that has children. There is an opt-in program which is an opt-in program at McDowell's, which is the loyalty card, which is the starting point, consumer opt-in. Consumer says, I go to McDowell's all the time. I would love discounts from McDowell's. I love free food from McDowell's. I would like to be part of their loyalty program. 
when they sign up, they check a box very similar to the box that we all check for Twitter and Facebook and everything else. So keep in mind, you've done this before. And when you when you uh, join McDowell's loyalty program, you've checked the box. Now, every single time that you come through McDowell's, your car is going through a quick serve restaurant drive through. These things in Web 2.0 have been incompatible, meaning the drive through window video camera and the drive through window credit card swipe machine are possibly in two separate states in terms of where they are processed, when, where the data resides. If you drew a line from the restaurant to the processing server, you might be in Illinois and you draw a line to the video surveillance system, which is cloud-based, it's over at Amazon, okay, in New York City. And whatever it is that that V that happened in the real world didn't happen in the metaverse, that the metaverse stayed like a cloud over the restaurant, and that it said, hey, video camera, what what, 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 what credit card swipe do you have at, what, at uh, 1 p.m.? seven minutes, 37 seconds. And at that point, I have a photograph from the video camera that I bought of my client in his car with his children, in the clothing he chose, in the hat he chose, in all the things that I can derive from that from that photograph. Now, the consumers opted in. And when the consumer opted in, he said that they wanted, they wanted discounts for their buying behavior, essentially the, the box that they checked. Now, they have the ability at McDowell's to give two things, a record to discount tire, hand-cooked tire, Goodyear tire. They have a record for Ford, Chevy, Honda, Hyundai, so on and so forth. They have a record for these sales groups that are around that community that want that consumer to buy their superior products. But McDowell said every consumer you, you approach will be given discount. Okay. So they, they affirm a discount based on their volume. They use the volume record to exchange for a record. Sounds like Facebook. So the idea that they are able to create a data estate and a system that leverages two disparate things in the real world, in the Web 2.0 world, incompatible. In my, in my data vault, Web 3.0, I'm able to transact in a, in a decentralized way. So think of Bitcoin, Binance, Chia, any, any form of coin that you prefer to use, you can transact to get that object, okay? So when, when Discount Tire and other companies want to buy this, if they're smart, they're up in already Web 3.0 and they're doing the data buys on margin. They're, they're, they're riding the volatility and not even paying for this data, but they're generating value in Web 3.0. In Web 3.0, that camera and that swipe machine communicated together because I called both systems, bought a record back into an object and made it vendable. And then I'm, I also stacked it. So every car that came in, I stacked it into a vault and I sold it as a payload on a monthly basis. And, and, and I delivered for my clients a discount. I delivered for discount tire on the nails, a really good data. And I'm McDowell's corporation and I just made 3% more in my margin 
than I had before. And I'm I'm in a burger business where margin in three percentile is win, lose, or draw. You just won. So you're able, you're able to extend past the, the taco shop and everybody else because you have slightly better management of your data. So the idea that Q, QSR it, it is enabled by the metaverse, by the traffic that comes through all of the vantage points that it has so that you're watching the street, you're watching the par- parking lot, your employees, all of the things that you monitor and track, all the people you fired and hired all the foot traffic, all the middle management you chew through, all of those things become assets. Now, also, that when I have an employee of the month, when I have a high performer, and I got to keep them at my restaurant, but they're going to go work at, at Goldman Sachs. So I have them for a moment in time, and I can issue them coin. I can give them from my lips to their their ears I can pre-record what I say to every employee of the month, every month, but to that employee, it lights them up and it says to them, they're doing good work and they're noticed, but it's in a permanent coin, McDowell's branded, and it goes in their wallet. And again, you can create data assets from yourself, from your own operations, from what you do good. So that's, that's the idea. Mm-hmm. So, um, if if one was to be the protagonist in this story, uh, Nathaniel, and say, like, well, hang on, it sounds great, but Web three hasn't really arrived yet, um, and there's still no one can really say like this is what Web three is. Like, there's you know different interpretations of it. It's more like an idea than a thing. Um, what's your what is your point of view? You know, to a decision maker who's like, yeah, man, this sounds great, but uh, you know. I'm good with my 25 QSR restaurants in Web 2, and I don't believe that uh, Web 3 has really fully arrived just yet. Like, what? Do you, well, how do you, um, you know, take a, a business from a Web 2 mindset into a Web 3 one? Because I know you know what you know. <laughs> like, But I think a lot of the market doesn't know, or they don't trust it, or they're thinking it hasn't arrived just yet. Well, it's, it's the principle of really the... Uh, a single rotten apple ro- uh, rolls the bunch or spoils the bunch, you know, in, in the, the idea that digital junk, you said it um, with NFTs, uh, the, the volatility of Bitcoin, the, the feeling that people have that they either missed it or, you know, they missed, they missed the millions there, the, the millions and millions that were made, they missed out and they, they also don't understand it. And every time it's explained to them, it's even more and more scary because there's more and more stories about how people got ripped off or how they they lost money in volatility. You know, remember, wealth is created and destroyed in concentration. So if you were 100% Bitcoin, that's a wild ride. You know, but what you will see, what you will see is the increasing value in that in that entity, Bitcoin itself. And it's about scarcity. It's a model that was taught to me by Matthew Mellon. Um, he, he unfortunately died, but he was a tremendous uh, thought leader uh, for people my age. Uh, Matthew Mellon taught me uh, Bitcoin and how it was a, a scarce uh, uh, artifact that every mathematical computation was done in a way that would be de minimis in its its output, meaning that it gets more and more scarce as a as a object. Um, so I, I believe that the Bitcoin is misunderstood. Um, it is brilliant. Um, its decentralization makes it fair for people uh, in a way that banks are 
quite frankly, afraid of. Um, if you look at the decentralization of banks really being the the, the blow up of banks, um, you know, they, they, that's not true in terms of how it, it's going to play out. Um, you, you see banks now starting to get it and come on board uh, with various strategies and de decentralized coin. Uh, what I would tell you is that the federal government itself would lend itself to a crypto strategy uh, that would enable us to unearth the, the precious metals of our United States. Just take the gold in California, the copper in Arizona, the granite in New Hampshire. If you were able to understand it under earth, to know that it's there, to tokenize it in a virtual reality in the metaverse and price it, I think people will connect with what the metaverse is by understanding unmolested, the land remains pure and untouched, but you pull out from the land the value and the underlying asset under a scientific precise study that is proven and even backed off for the, the for the gold that you destroy when you actually go in to get it, that, that you may back off your estimate, but that you know what's under the ground. And so the metaverse is about a digital representation of things, not the things, but the, the, the representation of them. So if I were to give you a description of what Web 3.0 is, it's a utopia. It's a bright light utopia where we can go in and do things that we've never imagined that we'd be able to do. If you're poor in America, you could take your entire family to the Grand Canyon for very little money if the, if the government could do a metaverse version for you. And so the idea that, that we can learn a lot, that we can connect a lot more and do a lot more in a utopic environment where everything works together and there are no limitations in our mind, in our creativity, and how we move forward. So Zuckerberg's a genius. He's got a great thing. The problem is that he's got to monetize it and gamify it and make it fun for everybody. And he's not going to be able to do it because we're skeptics. And he's already super rich, so we're already negative against him, disposed to bring him down. So, But the idea that he has, the metaverse, utopic, it has it has a, a tremendous... Uh, opportunity within it, it will be unlocked by thousands of companies, not just one. And that's kind of another beauty of it, I see, is that for young people, you know, HTML ran its course, Flash ran its course, Java ran its course. Java is still very useful. Some of the things I mentioned might be useful, but they're all in this coding modality. And that was great jobs and huge feasting that we did. But what are the new jobs and what are the new things? And so this represents space travel and so many things that we thought were so far-fetched that we in our generation X would experience that, that we, we can see it now. A, a place where we could live forever, a place where we could experience things, that we're, where we're immortal. And, and so the, the, the allure of that and the vision of that is worth starting somewhere. What Data Vault's about is just saying, look, we're going to punch a hole in Web 2.0 and let you peer in. You're not going to put the glasses on, so we'll give you a blast room to look in. And when you look in there, you're going to see things that you have never seen before. Valuations of data that didn't talk to one another, that when you see their value, make you go get it or give you the money so you can. 
So those are the things that I see. I think it's a, it's very simply a utopic environment where everything is possible. Companies can mirror their physical environments and see problems, alerts, see what's complex in the real world in a very simple environment. You mentioned Internet of Things. I think the lack of a dashboard for your body, like if I asked you how hydrated are you right now, you should be able to rip off a percentage. It's 2022. You should be able to tell me how much water you need to drink tonight. You should be able to tell me if your heart rate is good today compared to yesterday. And where, where do you stand in your health? It should be a dashboard. We have all the tools. We lack the will. And, and the, the idea that you could take the data, push it up to the metaverse and see it for the first time, see a little alert saying hydrate yourself, that that, that would be a breakthrough. And it's brain dead. It's, it's, it's remedial, uh, first grade metaverse. Look at your body and see, a, see an alert. That it, it is a shame that that's where we start, but it is where we start. It is where we start at the very, very beginning. Great stuff. So, Nathaniel, you guys have raised uh, over $30 million so far. Um, the market's not exactly um, like booming right now. I think raising uh, money is pretty difficult. I'm curious to get um, uh, your view on, um, on raising money in the current market. Um, so the first thing I'd like to ask from you is like, when should a startup raise money in your perspective? Is it from day one to build out the platform to create that kind of roadmap uh, or runway rather? Um, you know, and when should they say no, given the market where it is, the valuations not being where they are or where they should no, be? No, it's a great point. Um, so it's difficult right now in many institutions announced, you know, we put our checkbooks away. You know, um, you know, a lot over two trillion dollars on the sidelines right now in the IPO markets. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and also the perception of crypto, right? And the the crypto winter they've called it. Um, you know that that perception. We're not immune to the macro markets, um, but I would tell you that the cream rises to the top. To answer your question, when you take money, uh, you take money when you know you can deliver return. You should look at yourself uh, in the mirror. And when you take money from individuals in any capacity into your company, whether it's debt or equity or however, it's really the return on capital, uh, the ROI uh, that needs to be your focus. Um, having intellectual property, um, as we do, uh, so we spend a lot of our own personal kind of roll up the sleeves time in this company in incubation in very careful planning and filing of intellectual property. Uh, this allowed us to put a floor in the deal. So as we're raising capital, and what I would tell you about hard markets is that good companies rise to the top. So I have a company that creates net revenue, newfound value inside companies, inside people's estates. So Yogi Berra Foundation hired us. We looked at their assets. They have Aflac and so many amazing assets that we've unearthed, you know, this amazing content. And it was dormant, latent potential, a, a data lake left to, to, to age. And so the idea that, that we can put that money to work inside systems and create value has allowed us to weather the storm very well. Um, so we're safe harbor. We're privately traded. We're not in the volatility of the market. We're actually laying in the weeds, uh, growing value and waiting to feast on the market when it comes back. 
it's very important to be optimistic. Um, it's so easy to get the bears in your ears um, and and decide you want to fold or stop or quit or go get a job. You know, the idea that 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 is uh, not entrepreneurial, that the idea of fighting through and some of the best companies are built in recession um, and the mother of all inventions necessity and uh, trauma and pressure uh, creates that necessity in many ways. And that the the idea that you can invent in strife probably better than you can in abundance because you get lazy and, and lackadaisical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, we need to make a better world. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's something where data informs that path. And we all have our part in that. And data also shows us that. So, uh, Nathaniel, I couldn't agree with you more on that point. Like, when's the best time to start a business? I've been asked that many, many times. And people are like, oh, no, no, you must wait till the, mar- the, the winter's over or the markets improve. It's like, it's actually, well, the best time to start a business is actually in a recession because if you can, or just when the markets are shit, because we, if you can come through that to your point, like you've, you've built something that's truly valuable. So when the market does start to swing the other way, when the when the when the tide starts to rise again, we all know that all boats rise with a rising tide, right? So if you can build it when it's shit and and capitalize on it when it's great, that's that's a really interesting uh, strategy. However, having said that, I'm curious to maybe change gears just just very quickly. A couple more questions. One is you've obviously listed a company on the Nasdaq. When do you start thinking about an exit? Because it seems to me like this is a, a you know a platform economy type play that can scale really well. Uh, you've raised a significant amount of money. You're probably going to raise more. You're going to get to a point where you've you've got a significant amount of value on the table. Um, when do you start thinking about an exit? Do you build it? Do you start thinking from day one? Do you feel like that's not a good idea? Uh, my sense is, is like build it, build it as if you were going to sell, so that if you needed to, you can, and you put everything in place so that you can have that exit uh, on the table, as opposed to wasting three years trying to redesign your business. Um, but uh, love to get your view on that. So um, I, I think beginning with a strategy and a plan, um, you do want your plan to have exit in it. Um, I think exit strategy is one of the most alluring things to investors, and in particular in the private sector. Um, exit means uh, scale. Um, I, to your point about raising money, you know we have raised uh, significant money into Data Vault, and um, we've used it to build platform um, and team and culture. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine said this morning, culture eats, eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, culture is one of the hardest things to build um, in, in terms of a growth culture. Um, it's, it's hard to work harder and harder every day and grow in, in these hockey sticks without burning uh, everyone out. And so the idea that um, you want to plot your plan, uh, no capacities, and I, I I love the strategy of building value into scale. I think of Data Vault as something I can't even wield. Um, at the end of the day, it's so powerful that it's like Excalibur in a rock that I have built it so powerful that I can't wield it. And and maybe Accenture should, maybe Big Blue should, maybe maybe Amazon should, because they could pull the sword out of the rock and actually make Data Vault into you know a u.s treasury uh asset builder right 
And so uh, there is a very elitist uh, and maybe it's a little unfortunate for our democracy, but uh, there is antitrust laws for a reason. Companies that have run right up against those laws for 25 years, Google, uh, Amazon, uh, consolidating business after business. So one would say if you're successful in technology, you've sold your company or you're an executive at one of these big companies. And there's really not a lot of middle ground there. You talk about like the disparity in wealth and poverty. Um, if you look at uh, startup companies in nature to their peer, uh, Google and Amazon and others, very few of us look at the mountain and say, I will, I will have another mountain. You know, uh, you know, they, they, they mostly believe uh, that they will exit inside scale. Now, the public markets are the, the answer, the, the, the way that you could play at the higher level if you have something great. If you have something like Audio Eye was, which is super special, helps people, has a soul, and you could get people to understand it, you could build the cybersecurity around it, play on the level playing field, feed those monsters because you're buying the cybersecurity from them. But uh, you know, you're gonna feed the beast, but you're gonna be your own thing. And you could get up maybe to a fraction of where they're at um, in reality. Uh, because they will constantly be buying and consolidating and growing. I don't think you're going to catch Google these days. Uh, and I don't think any of us are sitting here. I'm going to be the next Google. Uh, so the idea that you do exit inside these companies, three three doorways, a merger, which are so intelligent you know, for entrepreneurs. When you have other entrepreneurs that made it halfway or medium way and you made it medium way, when you merge, sometimes that does it. You know, you you say, uh, you know, you built you built St. Louis. I built Chicago. We're going to come together, you know. And so the idea that that you have a uh, convergence and a merger that takes you public. So merging into a public entity, a shell, people call them, you know, finding a vehicle, dumping assets. You know, we're a holding company. So we're a conglomeration of like 17 technologies. And so, you know, it took us a long time to get that sophisticated. But on the way up, if you're inside one of those smaller LLCs or such, mergers are one door. The next door is acquisition. So data vault right now, you know, in terms of the public markets, the last door is IPO. IPO is nirvana. It's 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 where you say this belongs in the public's hands. It's that good. It can it can it can make margins at the end of time. It's a little machine. And you put you put more money in, more money comes out. And so you, you have to manage that and get a widget to go like that and know that you have that. And a lot of technology companies are on the arm because they say, we're going to unlock this future future value, but you got to get us up to the market so we have capital to do it. And that's a big discussion, right? And that's, a, that's the arbitrage in your stock price. And so the performance is, is on you. You know, the first two categories, you got friends in a merger, you got a, a, a daddy, a, a business daddy in the acquisition. In the go up your loan strategy, you better have governance, you better have cybersecurity, you better have your ass covered. And that, that, that so that's the idea around that. It, it, ROI for investors, go public. You know, on your best day, you're going public. But the, uh, the the two other doorways are very lucrative for uh, technology inventors, uh, practitioners. And I think that th- those represent the best three exit strategies there are. Amazing. Um, Nathaniel, let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? 
Like you could choose to solve any kind of problem, but why do you get out of bed in the morning? So, uh, really, uh, you know, for my family, my father was, uh, uh, a very prolific Senator. He was a civil rights leader in Arizona. Uh, they lowered the flag in Arizona to my father. He was a second ranked, uh, person in the Arizona government. Uh, he, he was the majority leader in the, or the minority leader in the Senate. Um, and, uh, worked with the governor. So I would need to be governor of a state to match my father. Uh, he was a, a really great man uh, that when I wake up in the morning, I pray and I, you know, I can't wait to be with him. But I got to do good in this world right now. Um, and that's what I that's what I'm striving to do is really be like my dad uh, best I can. Um, and that's uh, maybe sound selfish, but that's the truth. Not at all, Dave. Yeah. What was the greatest lesson your father ever taught you? Uh, really, uh, to be positive every single day. My dad would be in crisis in Arizona to try and balance budgets, and he'd famously be listening to classical music in, in Kennedy's rocking chair. He bought a, a JFK rocking chair, and he would just sit in it. And uh, he would read. He was a reader and a strategist. And when he opened his mouth, people listened. Um, so he taught me a lot about integrity. Well, Nathaniel, we've been all listening to you. So um, <laughs> you're a triple of the thank old you. block, dude. So, um, but uh, I think, thank you. But I think what you're doing is is remarkable, um, and it's hard. And I think your dad would be maybe he wouldn't understand it, but I know he would be proud. So congratulations uh, on, uh, but congratulations seriously on all your success. Um, and you. Uh, you know, we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for thanks for talking to me today. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Ciao, right. ciao. Take care. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.